Another species of oppression to which the gentlemen who refused to subscribe the bond were subjected was the serving upon them a writ of law borrows. The term law borrows is from burg or borrow, an old Scotch word for caution or surety, and means security given to do nothing contrary to law. The import of a law borrows in Scotland is that when two neighbors are at such variance that one dreads bodily harm from the other, he procures from the judiciary, formerly from the council or any other judge's competent, letters charging the other to find caution or security that the complainer, his wife, bairns, etc., shall be scatheless from the person complained of, his wife, bairns, etc., in their body, lands, heritage, etc., but before such letters can be granted, the complainer must give his oath that he dreads bodily harm, trouble, or molestation from the person against whom he complains. The propriety of magistrates issuing such a writ in the case of private individuals may be admitted, but its being issued at the suit of the sovereign against his subjects simply on account of their refusing an unreasonable bond was the height of oppression. Footnote Wadrow's History, Volume 2, pages 401 and 403. Crookshank's History, Volume 1, page 434. End footnote. Yet, under the operation of this writ, the Duchess of Hamilton was threatened to be brought, and had Lauderdale succeeded in his wishes, she would have been subjected to its, its restraints and penalties, for the Duke of Hamilton had intim, intimation sent him that it was designed to serve it upon him. Footnote, Burnett's History of His Own Times, Volume 1, page 135. End footnote. In other words, that he was to be obliged, according to the tenor of the Act, for serving law borrows on the refusers of the bond, to enact himself in the books of the Privy Council that he himself, the Duchess, their children, and their tenants, should keep His Majesty's peace, and particularly that they should not go to field conventicles, nor harbor, nor commune with rebels or persons intercommuned, and that under the penalty of the double of his yearly valued rent, or such other penalties as should be thought convenient by the lords of the Privy Council or their committee. Footnote, Wadrow's History, Volume 2, page 401. End footnote. Lauderdale, however, was compelled to abandon his intentions. The ravages of the Highland host and the enactment in reference to law borrows which looked like French or rather like Turkish government, created universal indignation. The Duke of Hamilton and ten or twelve of the nobility with about fifty gentlemen of quality went up to London to complain and the storm of opposition became so violent that Lauderdale was glad to recall the Highland host and suspend the execution of writs of law borrows. Footnote. Burnett's History of His Own Times, Volume 2, page 135. End footnote. Residing almost constantly at the Palace of Hamilton, the Duchess had full opportunity of learning the state of affairs in the district, and she entered, in, she entered much into the feelings of the people in the distressing and turbulent times in which she lived. She especially took a great interest in the welfare and comfort of her tenantry, and when, like others, they were exposed to persecution and lawless violence, she was always prepared, according to her ability, to throw the shield of protection over them. In proof of this, we may refer to the manner in which she acted when, in 1678, the Highland host, now adverted to, was let loose, like an army of locusts, to lay waste on the western parts of the country. 
The injury done by the host to her tenantry was considerable, though perhaps less than that suffered by many others. In the parish of Strathaven, of which she was chief proprietor, by an account taken up a considerable number of years after the revolution from such sufferers as were then alive, there was lost by free quarters and other extortions the sum of seventeen hundred pounds, twelve shillings. And, as Wadger remarks, we may without any stretch double it, considering that many were dead in thirty years and more after the Highland host were among them. In the small parish of Cambuslang, one tenant had fifty Highlanders of Athol's men, with a lieutenant and quartermaster quartered on him for eight days. Another had sixteen quartered on him, also for eight days. And other three had each twenty-two quartered on him during the same period. In the return of the host from the more western parts, one Lieutenant Stewart and Quartermaster Lecky came to that parish with eighteen men continuing five weeks in it during seed time, and they told the parish that they had orders to quarter eighty men, though they never showed their order. No more than eighteen of their men ever came, but they expected from the parish money equivalent to free quarters for eighty, which amounted to eight hundred sixty-one pounds, and whoever refused to pay had their houses rifled, and were forced to buy back their goods at a much larger sum than the sum for quarters would have amounted to. The tenantry in Hamilton Parish were also sufferers from the same cause. Indignant at these oppressions and hardships to which her tenants were subjected, the Duchess instantly complained and adopted measures for obtaining redress. Upon the 5th of April she took an instrument against the Earl of Strathmore, insisting for the restoration of what had been illegally exacted from her tenants in the parish of Hamilton by his soldiers. This instrument bears that on the 5th of April, in presence of a public notary and witnesses, John Bailey, her chamberlain, went to Patrick, Earl of Strathmore, who was for the time in the dwelling house of William Hamilton, Maltman, Burgess of Hamilton, and there, in her name and behalf, showed the Earl that neither she nor William, Duke of Hamilton, her husband, had ever seen any orders allowing any officers or soldiers in any troops or regiments for the time within the shire of Lanark to have free quarters upon any persons of whatever class, and that notwithstanding thereof a considerable part of the regiment of foot under the command of the earl, sometimes more and sometimes fewer, had quartered upon her lands and property within the parish of Hamilton from the sixteenth day of March last bypassed to this present day inclusive without payment of any sums of money as also that the said soldiers had exacted diverse sums of money, or dry quarters, as they termed these exactions, from several of her tenants, and that over and above the entertainment of meat, drink, and bedding, they had in the places where they were quartered. For this reason, and in respect, no order had been shown for free quarters or levying of money, over and above the same, Mr. Bailey, in name and behalf, and at command of the Duchess, desired the Earl either to pay or cause payment to be made to her respective tenants for the quarters his soldiers had upon her said tenants during the period of time above written, and also that the said tenants might be reimbursed of all exactions made by his soldiers from them. To this it was answered by the Earl that the bringing such of his regiment into Hamilton Parish was at the command of His Majesty's Privy Council, founded upon His Majesty's warrant, that the way in which he had quartered them was conformably 
to orders from the Major General that he had never commanded or allowed any exactions of any kind besides their quarters, and that such other exactions, if any were made, were expressly contrary to his orders. Upon which, this answer being judged unsatisfactory, Mr. Bailey, in name and at command of the Duchess, as also the Earl of Strathmore, took instruments in the hands of a notary. Footnote, Wadrow's History, Volume 2, page 430. End footnote. Whether these tenants were reimbursed for their losses does not appear. The probability is that they were not, but the representations made by the Duchess, the Duke, and others in reference to the proceedings of the Highland Coast were so far succeeded that these savages, after having ravaged the country for two months, were recalled. The Duchess was residing at Hamilton Palace when the Covenanters and the King's troops under the command of the Duke of Monmouth fought at Bothwell Bridge on Sabbath, the 22nd of June, 1679. The rest of this unfortunate engagement is well known. The Covenanters were defeated and put to flight. Few of them were slain in the encounter, but some hundreds were slaughtered in the most barbarous manner in the neighboring fields whither they had fled. A great number of them sought for concealment in the wooded parks around Hamilton Palace and here they found effectual shelter, for the humane duchess, on being informed that many of the insurgents who had been defeated were lurking in her policies, and that the royal army was pursuing them, sent a message to the Duke of Monmouth desiring that he would prevent his soldiers from trespassing upon her grounds. With this request, Monmouth, whose humanity in restraining the soldiers is deserving of commendation, instantly complied by giving orders to that effect and thus none of the fugitives who had taken refuge in her plantations were further molested. Footnote. Chambers, Picture of Scotland, Volume 1, page 357. New Statistical Account of Scotland. Hamilton, Lanarkshire, page 266. End footnote. In addition to her humanity, the Duchess possessed a nice sense of the honorable and just in spirit and in conduct. And, as by such principles she herself was uniformly regulated, it afforded her much satisfaction to meet with them and others. Of this we have a fine illustration in an interesting correspondence which took place in 1687 between her and Thomas Rokeby, son of Major Rokeby, for whose use part of the estate of Hamilton had been sold in Cromwell's time. This gentleman writes to her informing her that he was the ninth son of Major Rokeby, that after much reflection with himself he had come to the conclusion that Cromwell had no power to give away what was not his own, that by his father's death a tenth part of the price, 225 pounds sterling, had come to him when he was a boy, which was the only part he had in the injury, and that having suffered many hard conflicts with himself on that account, he had resolved to make restitution as the first step to forgiveness, first from God and then from her grace. He wrote to her five letters on the subject. With these communications, the Duchess was much gratified, not indeed because she attached any importance to the amount of his share of her spoils which he was so anxious to restore, but because of the indication they gave of a high sense of honor and a scrupulous regard to justice, which in such matters is not very common, and of which she probably never met during her long life with a similar instance. In her answers to his letters, she says little about the money, telling him that the Duke took care of that, but she expresses her admiration at his conduct. 
falling almost before him as a votary, and earnestly desires an interest in the prayers of a person endowed in her estimation with such superior excellence of character. These letters are preserved among the state papers and other documents in the Palace of Hamilton, and Mr. George Chalmers, the well-known author of Caledonia, who had read them, says, The beautiful simplicity that runs through this correspondence cannot be seen but in the letters themselves. Footnote Descriptive Catalogue of the Hamilton Papers in the Miscellany of the Maitland Club, Volume 4, pages 183 and 184. End footnote. Of the revolution which took place in 1688, the Duchess was a warm friend, both because it delivered these nations from tyranny and popery, and restored the Presbyterian Church of Scotland to her rights and liberties. Lockhart styles her a staunch Presbyterian and hearty revolutioner. Footnote. Lockhart's Papers, Volume 1, page 602. End footnote. Her zeal in the cause of the Church was well known to King William, who delicately jested her on the subject, as we learn from the following anecdote recorded by Wadrow. Writing October 3, 1710, he says, quote, I hear that a little after the Revolution, when this present Duchess of Hamilton was coming down from court and had taken her leave of the Queen and took leave of King William, he, smiling, said, You're going down to take care of the Kirk. Yes, sir, she replied, I own myself a Presbyterian, and offered to kneel to kiss his hand. The king presently supported her, and, as I think, did not suffer her to kneel, but said, Madam, I am likewise a Presbyterian. This I have from one that was witness to it, and another good hand that had it from the Duchess. End quote. Footnote. Wadrill's Analecta, Volume 1, page 304. End footnote. The Duke, her husband, was also a zealous supporter of the Revolution government, but her son, the Earl of Arran, devotedly adhered to James VII. He had been much courted by that monarch who had conferred upon him various lucrative and honorable situations, such as the office of His Majesty's Lieutenant and Sheriff in the shires of West Lothian, Lanark, Renfrew, and Dumbarton, the office of Groom of the Stole and First Gentleman of the Bedchamber, the office of Colonel of a Royal Regiment of Horse and of Brigadier General of all the Horse, as well as the honor of a Knight of the, of the Thistle. Footnote. Descriptive Catalogue of the Hamilton Papers in the Miscellany of the Maitland Club, Volume 4, page 183. End footnote. Gained by these marks of royal favor, he supported James in opposition to the government of William, and having been engaged in a plot for the restoration of James, he was twice committed prisoner to the Tower of London, where he remained for many months, but was at length discharged without prosecution. While he lay in prison, the Duchess, though disapproving of his conduct, conduct naturally felt for her son and wrote to the Earl of Melville, interceding in his behalf, as she had often before interceded with men in high places in behalf of those who had suffered in a better cause. The letter is as follows, quote, My Lord, the receipt of yours of the fourth was a great surprise to me to find, after so long a delay of that affair I commended so earnestly to your Lordship, that there is so little done in it. I doubt not, but as you write, and as I am otherwise informed, the stop has not lain at your door, Though there, are, though there are who say it has, but I wish it were made evident who have been the obstructors. 
I hope my son's peaceable behavior all this time will render his circumstances something more than fav- more favorable than those of some others. And when his majesty considers the service his father has done, will move him to renew the same favor he granted before to my son. His liberty on bail, which will be received as a great favor to all concerned. And if the ill condition of his health were known, it would plead compassion for him. But I have not time to add more but my Lord's humble service to you, and that I am, my Lord, your, lar- your Lordship's most humble servant, Hamilton. Holy Rood House, 19th December, 1690. End quote. Footnote. The Levin and Melville Papers, page 587. End footnote. In the year 1706, when the question of the union of the kingdoms of Scotland and England was so keenly agitated, the Duchess was a very zealous opponent of the measure. The union was indeed the highest degree unpopular among all parties. The Cavaliers or Jacobites, perceiving that it would destroy all hopes of the restoration of the pretender, violently obstructed it in every stage of its progress. The Presbyterians, too, whose opposition was much more formidable, opposed it, though from very different views, dreading that the consequence would be the supplanting of their favorite Presbyterian church government by the prelatic form established in England. And so strong was this apprehension that it could not be removed by all the offers made of security to the established Presbyterian church. Burnett, who was then Bishop of Salisbury and a great courtier, says that these fears were infused in them chiefly by the old Duchess of Hamilton who had great credit with them. Footnote, Burnett's History of His Own Times, Volume 6, page 277. End footnote. But this is perhaps ascribing to her grace a larger amount of weight in the Church of Scotland than, notwithstanding the great respect entertained for her, she actually possessed. Altogether independent of her opinion or influence, the intrinsic intrinsic importance of the question itself roused the attention of the Presbyterians, and they considered that good affection and zeal for the just rights and liberties, both of the nation and of the Presbyterian government of the Church of Scotland, as then by law established, bound them to oppose the Union. The Duchess, however, did all in her power to prevail on her friends to set themselves against it. Among the Hamilton papers there are still preserved several letters she wrote to her son, the Duke, inciting him to oppose it as ruinous to his country and steadfastly to concur with the Duke of Athol and those in the opposition. Footnote Descriptive Catalogue of the Hamilton Papers in the Miscellany of the Maitland Club, Volume 4, page 201. End footnote Burnett states it was suggested that she and her son had particular particular views as hoping that if Scotland should continue a separate kingdom, the crown might come into their family, they being the next in blood after King James's posterity. Footnote, Burnett's History of His Own Times, Volume 6, page 277. But such an insinuation is altogether gratuitous. The love of country and attachment to the doctrine and government of the Church of Scotland were the avowed reasons of her hostility to the Union. That her motives were family considerations was the surmise of her enemies, which they could not support by a single word she had ever uttered or written, or by a single action she had ever performed. 
Upon the preaching of the gospel and the public ordinances of religion, the Duchess set a high value. She attended with exemplary regularity public worship on the Lord's Day, and after the revolution, when the church was settled in a manner more consonant to her inclinations than before, she took a Christian interest in the efficiency and success of the gospel ministry. To secure to the parishes where her influence extended, such probationers as, upon the best inquiry, were found to be acceptable to all ranks in the parish was her great object. To the external comfort of the ministers of these as well as other parishes, she was ever ready to minister, and in other ways to encourage them in the faithful discharge of their pastoral duties. To provide more extensively the means of grace to the inhabitants of the district where she lived and to the tenantry on her estate was also her anxious desire. In testimony of this she endowed a second minister in Hamilton and another in Les Mahigo. Footnote. Scott's Magazine for 1773, pages 5 and 6. Chalmers, Caledonia, volume 3, page 723. The parish of Les Mahigo was served by two ministers long before this period. The second minister was established a considerable time before the, re- re- before the restoration, but from what source his stipend was then paid does not appear. The writer in the Scots magazine, in recording the liberality of the Duchess in endowing the second minister in the parish of Les Mahago, adds, This is but one instance I have mentioned of her piety and generosity. It would be impossible to enumerate them all. On this account, her memory will be revered not only in Les Mahago, where she was so well known, but by all the by all acquainted with her character as long as a sense of virtue and religion remain in the world. End footnote. She endowed a catechist or preacher of the gospel for Strathaven, who is always a licentiate of the Church of Scotland, and assists the parish minister by visiting the sick, catechizing the parish, and preaching one half the year. By her deed of mortification dated 1st of April, 1710, the annual income secured to him is 500 merks, and his appointment is vested in the noble family of Hamilton. Footnote. Descriptive catalogue of the Hamilton Papers in the Miscellany of the Maitland Club, Volume 4, page 206. End footnote. To the stipend of the parish minister of Strathaven, she added by mortification the annual sum of five pounds, which is regularly paid by the Duke of Hamilton. Footnote. New Statistical Account of Scotland, Lanarkshire, Avondale. End footnote. She mortified, 15th August, 1715, a piece of ground and a barn for the use of the minister of Borostonis and his successors forever. Footnote. Descriptive Catalogue of the Hamilton Papers in the Miscellany of the Maitland Club, Volume 4, page 206. End footnote. She also mortified, 13th of October, 1694, to the University of Glasgow, the sum of 18,000 marks for the use of three theologues from time to time to be presented by the family of Hamilton. Footnote. Descriptive Catalogue of the Hamilton Papers in the Miscellany of the Maitland Club, Volume 4, page 206. End footnote. Besides these deeds of liberality, she founded and endowed several schools, built bridges, and performed many acts of benevolence which make her name to be revered in Clydesdale to this day. Footnote. 
Anderson's Memoirs of the House of Hamilton, page 150. End footnote. We shall only advert to two other features of this lady's Christian character. The one is the sentiments of humility which pervaded her spirit in the house of God. In other places and at other times she was not unwilling to receive the honor due to her rank, but there, seated in the presence of the Divine Majesty, to whom all the temporary distinctions of life are nothing, she wished to appear on the same footing with the poorest, feeling that she labored under the same necessities as a rational and an immortal being, that she had equally merited God's wrath and equally stood in need of his mercy. An instance of this pious humility which she cherished in the place of public worship is still preserved. At the stated times for the celebration of the Lord's Supper in the parish of Hamilton, she was a regular communicant, and on one of these occasions, when she was coming forward to the table of the Lord, a plain, decent, aged woman, who was just taking her seat at the table, on observing her, was about to step aside to give her the precedency. But the Duchess, unwilling to receive in that place such marks of attention and respect, prevented her, saying, Step forward, honest woman, there is no distinction of ranks here. Footnote This anecdote is taken from a manuscript volume entitled Memoirs of Catherine, Duchess of Athol, in form of a diary, originally written by herself, to which are prefixed biographical notices of the Duchess's parents, William III Duke and Anne, Duchess of Hamilton, of her husband John, 1st Duke of Athol, and of Duchess Catherine herself. By the late Reverend Mr. Moncrief, Minister of the United Secession Church in Hamilton, the notice of the Duchess Anne is short but interesting. I cannot here omit expressing my obligations to the Reverend W.G. Moncrief Musselberg, who, in the kindest manner, favored me with a perusal of that work by his father, with full permission to make full use of its contents. End footnote. The other feature of her character worthy of special notice is her painstaking endeavor to train up her children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. There is nothing, as has been justly observed, which presents the Duchess's character in a more favorable light and recommends her more for imitation than the decided interest she took in the religious education of her own family. To overlook all concerned about having religious principles instilled into the minds of their children has been often too common with those in conspicuous ranks and their principal care has been to provide for them every facility of acquiring fashionable and polite accomplishments a suitable care that her family might not be without the accomplishments becoming their high rank in society was not overlooked by her grace but she also considered that it was a matter of the first and of vital importance that true religion should be understood, esteemed, and diligently practiced in her family. Her children were much under her eye and had a great respect and affection for her, especially her daughter, Lady Catherine, who became the wife of the Duke of Athol. Footnote. A notice of this lady is given in the close of this volume. End footnote. There is every evidence from the diary of Lady Catherine that besides other means of information and improvement to which she had access, the instructions and example of her esteemed mother were of great use by the blessing of God in disposing her mind to that love of charity and religion which took deep root in her heart and to that faithful discharge of her duties as a wife, a parent, 
and a Christian for which she was so distinguished. Footnote Mr. Moncrief's Manuscripts End footnote The Duchess lived to a very advanced age, retaining the possession of her mental faculties to the last, and exhibiting the most exemplary Christian patience under the infirmities of declining years. Mr. Robert Wiley, Minister of Hamilton, in a letter to Bishop Burnett, her old friend, dated October 29, 1714, says, The good old Duchess is still alive, entire in her judgment and senses, and laboring with a most exemplary patience and resignation under the infirmities of old age and frequent conflicts with the gout. Footnote. Wadrow's Correspondence, Volume 1, page 604. End footnote. This was very nearly two years before her death, which took place at the Palace of Hamilton on Wednesday, October 17, 1716, at six o'clock at night. The Scots Courant of that year, in recording her death, states that she was then in the 86th year of her age, adding that she was a pious and virtuous lady and is much lamented. Her mortal remains were deposited beside those of her father, husband and ancestors in the family burying vault at Hamilton. The particulars of her last illness have not been recorded, but the manner in which she had spent a long life had been such as to form the best preparation for another world, and it cannot be doubted that her latter end was peace. She came to the grave in a good old age, like as a shock of corn cometh in its season. Men of different and opposite political and religious creeds have united in paying homage to her virtue, piety, and mental endowments. Bishop Burnett's testimony to these has already been quoted. Crawford describes her as a lady who, for constancy of mind, evenness of temper, solidity of judgment, and an unaffected piety, will leave a shining character as well as an example to posterity for her conduct as a wife, a mother, a mistress, and in all other conditions of life. Footnote. Crawford's Peerage of Scotland, page 212. End footnote. Lockhart, a violent Jacobite, characterizes her as a lady of great honor and singular piety. Footnote. Lockhart's Papers, Volume 1, page 597. End footnote. And so high was the reputation for Christian excellence which she left behind her that her memory was cherished with affectionate veneration long after her death. And even down to the present day, the good Duchess Anne is the name by which she is familiarly known in the district where she is commonly resided and where her piety and benevolence were best known. Mrs. William Veach Footnote this notice of Mrs. Veach is drawn up chiefly from her own diary and from the memoirs of Mr. Veach written by himself. End footnote. Marion Fairley, the subject of this sketch, who, as the editor of her diary well observes, endured an amount of domestic affliction and vexatious persecution, in many cases more trying than martyrdom itself, was born in 1638 a year famous in the annals of the Presbyterian Church of Scotland. Her father was descended from the ancient family of the Fairleys, of the House of Braid, near Edinburgh, and was related to Lord Lee's First Lady, who was of that house and name. 
Both her parents, being eminent for piety, were careful to instruct her in her tender years in the principles of divine truth and to impress upon her mind the importance of the one thing needful. By the divine blessing on these labors of parental love, together with the pastoral instructions of an evangelical and faithful minister, Mr. Robert Burney of Lanark, she early acquired that deep sense of the things of God which she exemplified to the close of a long life. It pleased God, says she, of his great goodness early to incline my heart to seek him, and blessed him that I was born in a land where the gospel was at that time purely and powerfully preached, as also that I was born of godly parents and well educated. But above all things I bless him that he made me see that nothing but the righteousness of Christ could save me from the wrath of God. She adds, One day, having been at prayer and coming into the room where one was reading a letter of Mr. Rutherford's, then only in manuscript, directed to one John Gordon of Roscoe, giving an account how far one might go and yet prove a hypocrite and miss heaven, it occasioned great exercise to me. Footnote. See Rutherford's Letters, page 552, White and Kennedy's edition. End footnote. Misbelief said I should go to hell, but one day at prayer the Lord was graciously pleased to set home upon my heart that word, To whom, Lord, shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. John 6.68 And at another time that word, Those that seek me early shall find me. Proverbs 8.17 End quote. On the 23rd of November, 1664, she was united in marriage to Mr. William Beach, son of Mr. John Beach, the non-conforming, ejected minister of Roberton. Mr. Beach had been for some time previous chaplain to Sir Hugh Campbell of Calder in Morayshire, but was forced to leave that family about September that year, for on the restoration of prelacy, none, according to an act of Parliament, were permitted to be chaplains in families, to teach any public school, or to be tutors to the children of persons of quality, without the license of the bishop of the diocese. Footnote. Wadrow's History, Volume 1, page 267. End footnote. And Mr. Murdoch Mackenzie, Bishop of Moray, having upon making inquiry, found Mr. Veach's opinions hostile to prelacy, would not suffer him to remain in that situation. He accordingly came south and stayed some time with his father, who, since his ejection, had taken up his residence at Lanark, became acquainted with the godly families of that place, among which was the family of the young lady whom he married. Several of her friends endeavored, but without effect, to dissuade her from the marriage, urging, among other reasons, the worldly straits to which, from the discouraging aspect of the time, she might be reduced. This at first occasioned her no inconsiderable anxiety of mind, but she resolved to trust in God's promises for all needful temporal good things, as well as for spiritual blessings. And, says she, these promises were remarkably made good to me in all the various places of my sojourning in diverse kingdoms, which I here mention to the commendation of his faithfulness. His word in this has been a tried word to me, worthy to be recorded, to encourage me to trust him for the future, who heretofore has not only provided well for me in mine, but made me in the places where my lot was cast useful to others, and made that word good as having nothing and yet possessing all things, 
Second Corinthians 6, 10. Scarcely two years after her marriage, the storm of persecution burst upon her and Mr. Veach, separating them from each other and ultimately forcing them to seek refuge in England. Mr. Veach, who was a bold and daring man, was prevailed upon by Mr. John Welsh, minister of Iron Grey, and others who came to his house at the West Hills of Dunsire, where he farmed a piece of land, to join with that party of the Covenanters who, provoked by the brutal cruelties and robberies of Sir James Turner, rose in arms and were defeated by the king's forces at Pentland Hills. Footnote. The battle was fought on Wednesday the 28th of, December, of November, 1666. End quote. This was the origin of the multiplied dangers and troubles to which he and Mrs. Veach were subjected by the government and its agents during a series of many years. She seems to have had no scruples of conscience as to the propriety of the appeal which the Covenanters in this instance made to arms. She at least wished them all success. On the night of the defeat she was entertaining several of the officers who had fled to her house for shelter, and weeping lest her husband, of whose fate they could not inform her, should have been killed. On that same night Mr. Veach made his escape and came to a herdsman's house in Dunsire Common, within a mile of his own house, giving the herdsman his horse to take home to his own stable, and desiring him to inform Mrs. Veach of his safety. He lurked several nights thereabout, and at last retired into England. Two days after the battle, Mrs. Veach was thrown into alarm by a party of Dalziel's troop, which that general, on learning where Mr. Veach resided, had sent to the house to search for him, but to her great comfort he was not at home, and though in the immediate, neighbor, immediate neighborhood escaped falling into their hands. It was also gratifying both to him and her that the troopers did not get his fine horse, the manservant having led him out to the moor. For as it belonged to Lord Loudon, from whom the insurgent covenanters had taken it, on account of his sending his officer to warn all his tenants not to rise to their assistance, they were anxious to restore it to its rightful owner. On the following day, which was Saturday, Mr. Veach, having sent a manservant down to Tweedale to see whether it might be safe to travel through that part of the country, Mrs. Veach rode behind, on the, man behind the manservant upon Lord Loudon's horse, to the house of Mr. Patrick Fleming, minister of Stobo, a nonconformist, and sent Mr. Veach word according to his desire by the manservant who was to return that he might, to all appearance, with perfect safety, join her at the house of their friend as she had observed no party searching in that direction. On Mr. Veach's arrival at Mr. Fleming's house, which was about midnight, it was judged safest for him immediately to leave it and seek shelter elsewhere, and Mrs. Veach accompanied him on his journey, it being now the Sabbath morning, riding behind him on the same horse. They reached Glenvetch's before day, and at night came to Torwoodle, the residence of Mr. George Pringle, who, with his lady, a daughter of Brodie, of Lethen, in the north of Scotland, were ardently attached to the religion and liberty of their country, and whose house was a sanctuary to many of the persecuted in those evil times. Leaving this hospitable mansion, they next proceeded to the house of Mr. Veach's brother, Mr. John, minister of Worstruther in the Shire of Berwick. Here, having seen the printed proclamation for the apprehension of the leading Whigs, 
in which his own name appeared, Mr. Veach deemed it prudent to secure his safety by fleeing into England, leaving behind him his wife and Lord Loudon's horse. She rode on the horse to Edinburgh, where she delivered it to one of his lordship's friends and then returned to her own family at the West Hills of Dunsire. Meanwhile, Mr. Veach went to Newcastle. After her return home, Mrs. Veach was greatly molested with parties of troopers who came to her house to search for her husband. On such occasions, it was unusual for a party of them to surround the house to prevent him, should he be within, from making his escape by the windows or any concealed or back door, while another party went into the house and searched through every room and corner. Judging that there was more likelihood of his being at home during the night than during the day, they ordinarily paid their unwelcome visits in the night, when Mrs. Beach and her children were in bed, and at whatever hour they came, they rudely commanded her to rise and open the doors, threatening that unless she did so quickly, they would force an entrance by breaking them up. But though often engaged in making these searches, and so intent upon their object as to secure the aid of a malignant laird and lady in the neighborhood, who promised to inform them when he came home, they never succeeded in finding him. Hearing of the harassing annoyances to which his wife was subjected, Mr. Veach, dangerous as it was, came from Newcastle to see her and the children, and advised her to give up the farm and take up her residence in Edinburgh, where he hoped she might be suffered to remain in quiet. Removing to Edinburgh in compliance with his desire, she continued to live with her children in the capital for several years, during which time she was free from the troublesome visitors who had rendered her so uncomfortable at the West Hills of Dunsire. At length, about the year 1672, she and the children went to England to live with Mr. Veach, who, after traveling from place to place, preaching the gospel to the English nonconformists, who had been deprived of their ministers by the act of uniformity and by subsequent proceedings on the part of the government had been prevailed with by the people of Reesdale in Northumberland to give them the benefit of his stated ministry and to bring his family thither. Before leaving Scotland, she had given birth to four children. There, two of them, a daughter and a son, had died and were buried. The other two, who were sons, William and Samuel, she took with her to England. In those days, when neither railways nor stagecoaches existed, it was the custom to convey children to a distance in creels upon horseback. And by this slow and inconvenient mode of traveling, she brought her two boys by different stages from Edinburgh to the new place of their residence which was a village called Fallalees within the parish of Rothbury in Northumberland. Here Mr. Veach, for the better support of his family, farmed a piece of ground, the salary he received as minister from the people who were poor being altogether inadequate for the maintenance of his family, and all that he had having been taken from him upon his forfeiture in life and fortune after the Battle of Pentland Hills, except a little which was unknown to his persecutors. After recording in her diary her removal from Scotland to England, Mrs. Veach says, Being deprived of what once I had in Scotland, I renewed my suit to God for me and mine, and that was, and he would give us the tribe of Levi's inheritance, for the Lord God was their inheritance, Joshua 13.33. When I entered into a strange land, I besought the Lord that he would give me food to eat and raiment to put on, and bring me back to set his glory in Scotland. This promise was exactly made out to me. End of quote. She did not remain long in that place, having gone with Mr. Veach to reside five miles further in the country, 
where besides preaching in a hall at Harnham, he farmed a piece of ground and got as a residence for his family. Harnham Hall, the mansion of Major Babington, the representative of the Babingtons, a family whose antiquity in Britain is traced as far back as the conquest. After continuing here four years, being again under the necessity of removing, the house and ground having fallen into the hands of a new proprietor who refused to continue Mr. Veach as his tenant, she accompanied him to Stanton Hall in the parish of Longhorsley in May 1676 or 1677. That district abounding with papists and the incumbent of the parish, Mr. Thomas Bell, a Scotsman being a violent persecutor, it was far from being a desirable place of residence for a family of a non-conforming Presbyterian minister. Here Mrs. Veach experienced no small trouble from the repeated attempts made to apprehend Mr. Veach. At one time on the second Sabbath of August, 1678, about three o'clock in the afternoon, two justices of the peace, on the simple information of a single individual, seconded by the threatenings and persuasion of Mr. Bell, came with some men to apprehend him at a meeting in his own house. One of the justices with his party came to the front gates, while the other with his party appeared at the back gate. They rudely broke into the house and searched through it with pistols in their hands. Baffled in their attempts to find Mr. Veach, who concealed themselves within the lining of a large window which had been made for that purpose, they at last went away, after having advised Mrs. Veach to allow her husband to preach only to herself and her children, in which case they assured her she should not be troubled. Another attempt made some time after to apprehend him, proving successful, became to her a source of greater trouble. On Sabbath, the 19th of January, 1679, Major Oglethorpe, with a party of his dragoons from Morpeth, arrived at her house which was three or four miles distant from Morpeth, about five o'clock in the morning while the family were fast asleep. One Klug, a sheriff bailiff whom Oglethorpe, who was a stranger in the country, had hired as his guide, on reaching the house went to the window of the parlor where Mr. and Mrs. Beach were sleeping, and rapping on the glass of the window, repeatedly called out the name of Mr. Beach, who awaking asked who was there. On hearing him speak, Klug said to the major, who was standing beside him, Now yonder he is. I have no more to do. Oglethorpe, thus understanding what the object of his search was in the house, instantly broke in pieces the glass window in order to get in. But finding iron bars in his way, he demanded that the door should be immediately opened. And, impatient of delay, he and his dragoons broke in at the hall windows and getting their candles lighted before the servant maid opened the inner doors, they apprehended Mr. Veach and carried him to Morpeth Jail, where he continued prisoner twelve days. During the time that this scene was enacting, Mrs. Veach, though not free from alarm, yet persuaded that men could do nothing against her and her husband but what God permitted, conducted herself with a degree of composure which even surprised the rude and heartless military. In relating the scene, she says, quote, It bred some trouble and new fear to my spirit. But he was graciously pleased to set home that word, He does all things well. Mark 7.37 Trust in the Lord and fear not what man can do. Psalm 56.11 Which brought peace to me in such a measure that I was made often to wonder. For all the time the officers were in the house, he supported me so that I was not in the least discouraged before them, which made Major Oglethorpe say he wondered to see me. 
I told him I looked to a higher hand than his in this, and I knew he could not go one hair breadth beyond God's permission. He answered that he permits his enemies to go to a great length sometimes. They took him to prison where he lay about twelve days. End quote. During that period of Mr. Veach's imprisonment, Mrs. Veach was deeply afflicted in spirit, for which she had indeed too much reason, her prospects being very dark and distressing. She had no ground to hope that he would be soon released. She had, on the contrary, much cause to fear that he would share the fate of those who had been put to death for the Pentland insurrection, for he was regarded by the government as a traitor of the deepest dye. Sentence of death had been pronounced against him in his absence for high treason. Footnote on the 16th of August, 1667, end footnote, and he was excluded by name from the king's pardon and indemnity, footnote, dated October 1st, 1667, end footnote, all which argued ill for his future safety. Besides, she had now six helpless children, entirely dependent upon herself, with no apparent means of providing for their temporal necessities. But though sunk in sorrow in such trying circumstances, she was not overwhelmed with despair, betaking herself to the throne of grace where the afflicted have so often found relief, and reposing in the gracious promises of God's word, she was enabled to acquiesce in the divine will, even though her husband should fall a sacrifice to the fury of persecution, and though she herself with her fatherless children should be cast destitute upon the world. Quote, all the date twelve days of his imprisonment, she says, I was under much exercise of spirit which made me go to my God many times on his behalf. He made that word often sweet to me. He performeth the things appointed for me, Job 23:14, and that he is of one mind and who can turn him, verse 13. Much means were used for his liberty, but all to no effect which bred new errands to God for him and me. But misbelief coming in and telling many ill tales of God was like to discourage me, to wit that I was a stranger in a strange land and had six small children and little in the world to look to. But he comforted me with these words, O oh, why art thou cast down, my soul? What should discourage thee? And why with vexing thoughts art thou disquieted in me? Still trust in God for him to praise, good cause I yet shall have. He of my countenance is the health, my God, that doth me save. Psalm 43, 5 At length he helped me to give him, give him freely to him, to do with him as he pleased, and if his blood should fill up the cup of the enemy and bring about deliverance to his church, I would betake myself to his care and providence for me and my children. End quote. She adds, as if her faith had stayed the fury of the persecutor and arrested his cruel purpose, quote, And while I was yet speaking to God in prayer, that word was wonderfully brought into my mind, Abraham, hold thy hand, for I have provided a sacrifice. Genesis 22, 11 and 12, which comforted me concerning my husband. And that word, the meal in the barrel shall not waste, nor the oil in the cruise until the Lord send rain on the earth. 1 Kings 17 verse 14 which brought much peace to my troubled spirit concerning my troubled family I thought I had now ground to believe he should not die 
but misbelief soon got the upper hand and told me it was not the language of faith which put me to go to God and pour out my spirit before him. And he answered me with that word, They that walk in darkness and have no light, let them trust in the Lord and stay themselves on their God. Isaiah 50:10, Which refreshed me much and gave me more ground to believe my husband should not die. End quote. While Mr. Veach was lying in Morpeth jail, she received a letter from him written on the evening of the eleventh day of his imprisonment, informing her that an order having been dispatched from the King and English Council to transport him to Scotland there to suffer for alleged misdemeanors, he was to be removed from Morpeth for Scotland on the morrow and requesting her immediately to come and see him. When I opened the letter, she says, he had that expression, deep calleth unto deep. But he, God, was pleased to send home that word, good is the word of the Lord, which silenced much my my misbelief. On receiving the letter, she proceeded without delay to Morpeth, riding along with a manservant through a deep storm of snow, and arrived at an inn in Morpeth after midnight. Not being allowed access to her husband till the morning, she sat during the remainder of the night at the fireside, and when admitted to him, she could not speak to him but in the presence of a guard of soldiers who were that night placed in the room to watch him lest he should make his escape. Nor had she been long with him when, the kettle drums beating the troops presently to arms, he was separated from her and being carried out to the streets was set on horseback in the midst of the soldiers the townspeople from curiosity running to gaze, and brought to Elmwick, thence to Belford, thence to Berwick, and after being kept there for some time was carried to Edinburgh where he was thrown into prison. All these things, says she, were against me and conspired to frighten me. But that word being set home wonderfully supported me. Fear thou not the fear of man, but let the Lord be your fear and your dread. Isaiah 8, 12 and 13 I went after to a friend's house in the town and wept my fill and some friends with me. He desired that a day might be kept for offering up prayers in his behalf which was done in several places of the country. I went home to my children having one upon the breast. I was under much exercise about him and it was my suit to him who I can say is a present help in the time of trouble that he might be kept from the evil of sin which he was graciously pleased to answer. End of quote. The concluding sentence of this quotation, though very humbly and unostentatiously expressed, breathes the spirit of noble Christian fortitude, the holy heroism of the martyr. So strong was her sense of the paramount claims of duty that to witness her husband undergoing his present hardships and even crueler treatment, however painful to natural affection, was less painful to her than would have been the sight of his doing from motives of worldly ease ought which God and conscience would condemn. As a farther aggravation of the distressing circumstances into which she and her children were at this time reduced, it may be added that being conducted to Edinburgh jail at his own expense, Mr. Veach was under the necessity of selling his stock for money to bear his charges, and by so doing to lay his farm lee, rendering it presently useless to his family, yea, so disabled as the way-going crop was lost in which sad posture he left them, the children young, insensible of the matter, and unfit to do for themselves so that the whole burden was laid on the mother. 
To the extracts made from Mrs. Veach's diary during this period of trial, we may add the interesting record left by Mr. Veach of her distressful feelings and her faith in God under it, which proves that she was, as he expresses it, a meet helper for him indeed in this very case. Trouble and anguish, says he, did now compass her about in this darkest hour of her twelve years' night of affliction. Her soul melted for heaviness and grief. She is now in deep waters in a foreign land, far from her relations, friends, and acquaintances. Distress and desolation at home, and destruction and death abroad. The sad report whereof with trembling she expects every day, because of the fury of the oppressor. This puts her on a most serious exercise and firm resolution to take God for all. He should be the husband and he should be the farm. He should be the provider, the food, and the owner, the master of the family, and the father of the children. Yea, she resolved to cleave faster unto this relation than Ruth did to Naomi, for that which parted them should bring her to the greatest nearness most inseparable and comfortable communion with her God. Thus, while deep calleth unto deep, she held by her compass and followed the precedence of the word. Her prayer was in this night to the God of her life, and Jacob-like she gave it not over till she got a new lease of her husband's life granted her, which, when she obtained, she wrote an encouraging letter to him at Berwick, the weaning of her child Sarah, not suffering her yet to visit him telling him that he should be like Isaac with the knife at his throat near to death. But the Lord would find a sacrifice and the enemy should be restrained. She wished him also not to be anxious about his family for the meal and the oil, little as it was, should not fail, not only till he returned but also the kingdom to Israel. These instances so clearly and convincingly borne in upon her gave her comfort gave her good ground to say with the psalmist, Thy word is my comfort in all my afflictions. Her prayers and pleadings were turned to praises, and his statutes were her songs in the house of her pilgrimage, and she was persuaded that her knight would yet have a day succeeding it wherein he would, as a special favor to her and her family, command his loving kindness. Under all her sufferings, Mrs. Reach uniformly speaks in a chastened and subdued tone of those by whom they were inflicted. Nor did she yield to that bitterness and exultation of spirit which the human heart is so naturally inclined to cherish at witnessing or hearing of the calamities or judgments which may light on an enemy. Within five days after Mr. Veach's transportation from Morpeth to Edinburgh, one of the most virulent of his persecutors, Mr. Bell, formerly referred to, footnote, when Mr. Veach was removed from Morpeth for Edinburgh, Bell said, this night he will be at Edinburgh and hang tomorrow according to his demerits. And how could such a rebel as he who did so and so expect to escape the just judgment of God? End footnote. Mr. Bell, formerly referred to, met with his death in a very appalling circumstance. On returning home from Newcastle, he stopped at Ponteland and continued drinking there with the curate till about ten o'clock at night, when he was determined to go home. The curate urged him, as the night was dark and stormy, and the river pont which he had to cross was much swollen, to remain till tomorrow, and to detain him took his watch from him and locked up his horse in the stable. But, as if impelled by some unseen power to his fate, he would not be persuaded, and getting his horse proceeded on his journey. Two days after, he was found standing dead 
up to the armpits in the river pond near the side, the violence of the frost having frozen him in. His hat and gloves were on, and his boots and gloves were much worn from his struggles among the ice to get out. Mrs. Veach's reflections on this awful visitation are Christian and becoming. Quote, the whole country about was astonished at that dispensation, and often said to me there would none trouble my husband again, for they all knew that he was an enemy to my husband. I told them that I told them they that would not take warning from the word of God would never take warning from that. That scripture was often borne in upon my spirit, Rejoice not at the fall of thine enemy, lest he see it and be displeased. She adds, I blessed the Lord I was not in the least lifted up with it, for his word was my counselor. In all my doubts and fears, it was as refreshing to me as ever meat and drink were. There are none that study to make the work of God the rule of their walk. And when grace is master of the house, but they will say, as David said when Shimei railed on him, Let him alone, God hath bidden him. Who knows, but he will requite blessings for cursings. But when corrupt nature is master, it will say, Cut off the head of the dog. But I am much in grace's debt that kept me back from being of Shimei's frame. In reference to another case of ill-treatment received, she makes similar remarks. Quote, I bless the Lord who kept me from being of a revengeful spirit. Whatever I met with from the creature, he helped me always to look to God. That was often upon my spirit, which David said, Let him alone, God hath bidden him. And that word in the Psalms, Fret not thyself because of evildoers. End quote. About the close of February or the beginning of March 1679, a month after Mr. Veach was carried from Morpeth to Scotland and when he was lying a prisoner in the toll booth of Edinburgh, she set out with a heavy heart for Edinburgh through a great storm of snow in compliance with a letter she received from him, leaving her children behind her. On reaching the capital, she was much relieved on finding there was every prospect of his being set at liberty. But within a few days he was put in close prison and an order came from the king to hand him over to the judiciary court that intimation might be made to him of the sentence of death for high treason which had been pronounced against him in his absence nearly twelve years before. This threw her into a state of great agitation of mind. Providence now seemed to contradict the assurance she thought she had received from God that Mr. Veach's life would be preserved but by faith and prayer, her usual refuge in the hour of trial, her fears were gradually allayed and she became settled in her previously cherished hope that matters would be so ordered as to secure his personal safety. Nor were her hopes disappointed. About the close of July, Mr. Veach was liberated by virtue of the king's pardon, indulgence, and indemnity. When the news came to my ears, says she, that word came in my mind. He hath both spoken it, and himself hath done it. I will walk softly in the bitterness of my spirit all my days. Isaiah 38:15. She adds, We came both home in peace to our children, where we lived at Stanton Hall, three miles from Morpeth, in Northumberland, August 1679. Footnote. Memoirs of Mrs. Veach, page 6. She says 1680, by mistake. End footnote. 
This sore trial had now come to an end, but it did not leave them in outward circumstances equally favorable with those in which it found them, having involved them in a heavy debt. Owing to the forfeiture of Mr. Veach, and to their repeated removals from one place to another, occasioned by the prelates and the remissaries, they were unable to defray the expenses incurred in this business without borrowing considerable sums of money from their friends. In addition to her other virtues, Mrs. Beach was distinguished for kind-hearted hospitality. In those distressing times when oppression compelled our Presbyterian ancestors to wander in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth, her house, both during the period of her residence in Scotland and in England, was a resting and refreshing place for the wandering and weather-beaten flock of Christ. The same womanly and Christian kindness which prompted her cordially to receive into her house the officers of the Covenanters after their defeat at Pentland Hills, and to set meat and drink before them, led her cordially to welcome and kindly to entertain these friends and acquaintances who, when hunted like wild beasts by their persecutors, sought refreshment in a hiding place under her roof, and it was her observation that things never came in so plentifully, nor went so far as when they had most strangers. Among those who betook themselves for shelter to her hospitable dwelling was the Earl of Argyle, who suffered in 1685. At the close of December 1681, that nobleman, having on the 20th of that month escaped from the castle of Edinburgh, where he lay imprisoned under death, under sentence of death, directed his course to Stanton Hall with the view of being conducted on his way to London by Mr. Veach, whose intrepidity, shrewdness, and fidelity particularly recommended him for such a service. On Argyle's arrival, Mr. Veach being from home, Mrs. Veach sent some of her servants or friends about the country for two days in search of him, and on his return she consented to allow him to do his best in conducting their respected noble friend in safety to London. Some weeks after Mr. Veach's arrival in the English capital, she received a letter from him informing her that he had some thoughts of emigrating to Carolina, a scheme of planting a Scottish colony there having been formed by Sir John Cochrane and several others, that he had the prospect of good encouragement in a temporal respect, as well as of enjoying without disturbance that civil and religious freedom which was denied them in their native land, and that she might be making preparations for leaving Scotland. To this proposal she at first felt a strong disinclination. Driven though she was from place to place and exposed to many annoyances and hardships, yet to leave the land of her fathers at her advanced period of life, for she was now in the forty-fourth year of her age, and more especially to leave a land which, like Judea to the Jews, was endeared to her by the most sacred associations which God had honored by taking in the covenant with himself, and to encounter the perils of the ocean and all the dangers and difficulties attending a new settlement in the forests of America was a step to which she was averse from sentiments of patriotism as well as from natural feeling. But submitting her will to the will of God, she at last became less disinclined and stood prepared to go wherever he and his providence might call her. I thought, says she, in my old days I could have no heart for such a voyage and leave these covenanted lands. But at length I got submission to my God and was content. If he had more service for me and mine in another land, for I had opened my mouth and given me and mine to him and his service, when and where and what way he pleased, and I could not go back. 
but if I went there, I would hang my harp upon the willows when I remembered Scotland. End quote. Obstacles were, however, thrown in the way of this plantation, so that it was never formed, and she had the pleasure of seeing Mr. Veach return home after an absence of about half a year. But her troubles were not yet brought to a termination. A discovery of the Rye House plot, in which Mr. Veach had been concerned when, when in London, having been made, footnote, it was discovered in June 1683, end footnote, a justice of the peace came to the house to apprehend him. He narrowly escaped, and after hiding himself for some weeks, succeeded in getting over to Holland. At this time, Mrs. Veach fell sick but was not long in recovering. To complete the education of her two eldest sons, she sent them over to their father in Holland. While at sea, they encountered a severe storm by which many lives were lost, but they got safely to land, though with much difficulty. Meanwhile, she was deprived by death of her third son, a boy of twelve years of age. Her sorrow under this bereavement, though aggravated by the absence of his father, was mitigated from the striking evidence afforded by the dying child that he died in the Lord. Previously thoughtless and without any appearance of religion, he seemed to her, even some time after his illness commenced, not to be duly impressed with the awful importance of death and eternity. Anxious and trembling for the safety of his soul, she was in earnest in prayer that God would wean his young and tender heart from the world, open his eyes to see the glories of heaven, and discover to him his interest in the Savior. Her prayers were heard. One day, calling her to his bedside, he told her that the world to him has lo- had lost its attractions and that he was resigned to die. She asked the reason of this since he had formerly felt a desire to live. He answered that he had been praying and giving himself to Christ, that Christ had assured him of the delight he took in his soul, and that this had comforted him. Afterward he said, Is it, is it not a wonder that Jesus Christ should have died for sinners? Oh, this is a good tale, and we should think often on it. He frequently repeated these words, Whom have I in heaven but thee, and there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. Which, says Mrs. Beach, refreshed me more than if he had been made heir of a great estate. When engaged in prayer a little before he died, he prayed for his absent father and brothers, pleaded that his brothers and sisters might be animated to serve God in their generation, and used these words, Though we be far separated now, I hope we shall meet in glory. Also calling for his brother who was at home and his sisters, he blessed them all and bade them farewell. On becoming unable to speak, he held up his hand while his mother spoke to him of death and heaven. At last he put up his own hand and closed his own eyes, and so, says she, we parted in hope of a glorious meeting. The deep anxiety which Mrs. Veach felt for the spiritual welfare of her children is an interesting and instructive feature of her character. Nor was this anxiety limited to those seasons when sickness entered her dwelling and threatened to remove by death the object of the objects of her tenderest affection. As became a Christian mother, the spiritual interests of her children were to her a source of constant solicitude. Before they were born, she devoted them to God, and she renewed the dedication at their baptism. She early instructed them in the things of God and often recommended to them to him by prayer. 
It was her highest ambition to see them living the life of the righteous, and to engage them to such a life she plied them with arguments addressed both to their hopes and their fears, to their understandings and their hearts. When I was pouring out my spirit before him in prayer, she says in one part of her diary, he brought that word wonderfully to my mind where the angel appeared to Cornelius, Acts 10, and bade him send for Peter, who would tell him words by which he and his house should be saved. He opened mine eyes and let me see that which I had never seen before so clearly, that Christ's death and blood could reach a whole family. This gave me new ground to plead the promise for me and mine, and that the sign I sought from him might be accomplished, that they might evidence by their practice they were his, and my eyes might see it. In another part of the same document she further says, I charge all mine as they shall answer to God at the great day and as they would not have me to be a witness against them in that day, that ye covenant yourselves away to God in his service, and plead the good will of this promise. Footnote, the promise she refers to is, I will be your God, and the God of your seed, which she had been pleading with God, and which by his grace he had enabled her to, her to embrace. End footnote. In particular, every one of you for yourselves, for all I can do for you cannot merit heaven for you. For with the heart man believes, and every man is saved by his own faith. All my desire is that he would glorify himself by redeeming me and mine from hell and wrath, and make us useful in our generation for his glory. I thought fit to write this for my own use and the good of mine, and if the Lord should take me from them by death, I hope the words of a dying mother shall have some weight upon their spirits. End quote. During the time of Mr. Veach's stay in Holland, the entries in Mrs. Veach's diary relate chiefly to her anxiety about him and to her distress of mind on account of the condition of the church in Scotland whose sufferings seemed to have more deeply affected her heart than even her own personal afflictions. After relating some news she heard from Scotland and her exercise thereupon, she adds, quote, Within, a little mischief got the master of me, and it told me that I need not expect to see good days. This was occasioned by the apostasy of some, and the persecutors being permitted to run all down before them, as it were. I could sleep little or none for several nights. End quote. When recording the death of Charles II, she writes as follows, quote, when I heard it, I thought Pharaoh was dead, and I would go to God and beg of him that he would spirit a Moses to lead forth the church from under her hard bondage. End quote. And after referring to some passages of scripture which were impressed upon her mind, she observes that she was thereby made to hope that God would not leave these covenanted lands, especially Scotland. Meanwhile, a considerable number of English and Scottish refugees in Holland, encouraged by friends both in England and Scotland, were forming a scheme for overthrowing by force the government of James VII, who was resolutely bent on establishing absolute power in the state and popery in the church. The Duke of Monmouth was, in, was to invade England and the Earl of Argyll, Scotland. The scheme being matured, Mr. Veach, who was one of the party, was sent from Holland to Northumberland and the Scottish borders to give their friends information of their intentions, in doing which the matter, through his activity in traveling from place to place and through the zeal of numbers in many quarters to rise, was in danger of being divulged. So 
so that he was forced to retire to the mountains in the borders near Reedsdale Head and hide himself, nor did he deem it safe to go to Newcastle whither his wife had removed in 1684, till some time after the execution of the Earl of Argyll and the Duke of Monmouth. Footnote. The Earl of Argyll was taken on the 17th of June, 1685, and executed on the 30th of that month. The Duke of Monmouth was taken on the 8th of July, 1685, and executed on the 15th of that month. End footnote. On the arrival of Argyll in Scotland and of Monmouth in England, Mrs. Beach hoped that perhaps the time had now come for the deliverance of the Church and that these noblemen might be the appointed and honored instruments of effecting it. But that ill-conducted undertaking proving unsuccessful, these agreeable expectations were not realized and she felt in some measure dispirited. It was my desire, she says, that he would make good his word on which he had caused me to hope in behalf of the church, for I thought possibly this might be the time of building his house. But his thoughts are not like mine, for it pleased him who gives no account of his matters to let both these great persons fall before the enemy, which put me to pour out my spirit before him, and and often to charge my soul to be silent for my ill heart and misbelief were like to quarrel with him. End quote. The tendency to quarrel with God, which she expresses herself as feeling at the disastrous issue of this attempt, made occasion little surprise. For although the enlightened friend of freedom will not now regret that such was its issue, Providence having not long after, without struggle or bloodshed, brought about a more effectual and permanent deliverance than could have been expected by its success, Yet at that time the defeat of the enterprise was in no small degree discouraging to many of the Covenanters, as it seemed to demonstrate the hopelessness of any efforts to throw off that oppressive yoke under which their powers of endurance were well nigh exhausted, and even threatened to rivet the chains of slavery and popery more firmly on Britain than ever. Still, she never despaired of the deliverance of the church and nation, and even cherished the hope of living to see it accomplished. On one occasion, after the fatal result of this insurrection, at a social meeting for prayer and conference held in her house at Newcastle, where besides her husband there were present some of his pious Scottish relations, and also some other good people of the town of Newcastle, after several had spoken in an almost despairing tone of the state of matters, she expressed her confident hope that good days were still awaiting Scotland. She said that the night was indeed dark, and that all things wore a dismal aspect, but that she was notwithstanding persuaded that God would not leave his own work, but from an unexpected quarter would raise up instruments to build his house, to restore the ark and the glory, and bring home his captives. She added, moreover, that she felt assured she would see presbytery established and her husband a settled minister in the Church of Scotland before she died. Quote, Though they loved the thing, says Mr. Veach, yet they little believed it in the time. But when it came to pass, they both thought and talked much of it. End quote. From the danger he was in of being apprehended, Mr. Veach only visited her occasionally from the time he came from Holland, early in 1685, till his settlement as a minister at Beverly, near 100 miles south from Newcastle, after King James's declaration for liberty of conscience in England when with her family she removed to that part of the country. 
When Mr. Veach was called to Beverly, she felt some reluctance to settle in that place from the strong desire she had to see the restoration of the church to prosperity in the land of her birth, and that her husband might in some degree be instrumental in promoting it there. Though at last she submitted her inclinations to the determinations of Providence, if he could be more useful in that place than in another. But when, after having preached for six or seven months in Beverly with much success, he received pressing invitations to return to Scotland, where King James's toleration had been accepted, she was extremely desirous that he should comply with these invitations, though the people of Beverly had sent for her, given her good offers, and used many arguments to persuade her and him to stay with them. Her heart, says Mr. Veach, was for her native country, and she longed to see that in the performance which she had promised herself formerly in her duties in wrestling with God, and had expressed her assurance thereof. End quote. She, however, apprehended that the design in view in the toleration extended to Scotland as well as in that granted to England was under the guise of benefiting dissenters to afford relief to papists and ultimately to pave the way for the establishment of popery. Considering it came from a popish king, she writes, made me fear what the issue might be. On the compliance of Mr. Veach with a call he received from the United Parishes of Oxnam, Crailing, Eckford, Linton, Moorbattle, and Hownham to preach to them under King James's third indulgence at Whittenhall, which was almost the center of these parishes, footnote, he entered on this charge in April 1688, end footnote, she returned with great joy to her native land. But, says she, his promise to me for his church in Scotland was not yet altogether performed. I was like Haman, Esther 5.13. All availed me little so long as I saw popery owned by authority. I thought that then the ark was still in the house of Obed-Edom. It was my desire that he would spirit some to bring it to Jerusalem. End quote. She had not, however, been much more than half a year in Scotland when James VII was driven from his throne and William, Prince of Orange, was called to fill it, a revolution which, by more narrowly circumscribing and more exactly defining the prerogatives of the crown than had been done in any former period of the history of our country, conferred on the subjects a degree of liberty they never before had enjoyed, defeated the design of restoring popery, overthrew prelacy in Scotland and brought to a termination the sufferings of the Presbyterians for conscience' sake. After the Revolution, she resided first in Peebles and next in Dumfries, in which places Mr. Veach was successively minister. In the last of these towns, she died in May 1722 at the advanced age of 84. Mr. Veach died on the day after her death, having completed his 82nd year. Mr. James Guthrie, Minister of Iron Grey, in a letter to Mr. James Sterling, Minister of Barony, Glasgow, dated May 9, 1722, says, quote, Your honest old friend, Mr. Veach, is now gone to heaven, for he died yesterday morning and his good wife departed this life on Friday last, so that they who lived long together on earth are now gone to glory, I may say, together also. Mr. Veach, for some months before his death, wanted the use of his tongue, right arm, and leg, so lay almost as one dead long before he gave up the ghost. End quote. Footnote. Letters to Wadrow, Volume 10. 
number 172, Manuscripts in Advocates' Libraries. End quote. This venerable pair had been married 58 years and they were both interred on the same day in the old church of Dumfries. We shall conclude this sketch with a few particulars relative to Mrs. Beach's children. She had five sons and five daughters. Of these, four, uh, of these, four died young. Mary, her first child, was born on the 23rd of September, 1665, at the West Hills of Dunsire, died March 9, 1666, and was buried at Dunsire Kirk. William, her second child, was born on the 2nd of April, 1667, at the West Hills of Dunsire. Samuel, her third child, was born on the 9th of December, 1668, at Edinburgh, and baptized on the 13th by Mr. John Blackadder. These two sons she had devoted to the Christian ministry and sent to Holland to prosecute their studies at the University of Utrecht, but the young men expressed their decided preference for the military profession and when the Prince of Orange came over to England in 1688, they held commissions under him. Both of them served in Flanders during the war with France, which broke out after the Revolution. William was a lieutenant in Angus's, or the Cameronian Regiment, and was wounded in 1699 at the Battle of Steinkirk. He was shot through the left cheek an inch below the eye, and the ball falling into his mouth, he spat it out. The two brothers afterward went out as captains of the forces of the Scottish colony, which it was intended to settle at the Isthmus of Darien, but the settlement came to a disastrous termination. Captain William died at sea on returning home after the evacuation. Captain Samuel ultimately settled at New York, where he married a granddaughter of Mr. John Livingstone, minister of Ancrum, by whom he had a daughter called Alida, who married an American gentleman of the name of Pinkley, near Philadelphia. James, her fourth child, was born at Edinburgh on the 9th of March, 1671, died at Arnestown on the 10th of April, 1672, and was buried in the churchyard of Temple on the 12th of that month. John, her fifth child, was born at Fallalees in the parish of Rothbury in Northumberland on the 19th of July, 1672, died at Stanton Hall about Martinmas, 1684, and was buried at Nether Wilton, four miles from Morpeth. This is the boy of whose death an account has previously been given. Elizabeth, her sixth child, was born at Harnham in the parish of Bolam in Northumberland on the 20th of May, 1674. She was married to David McCullough of Ardwell on the 7th of June, 1710, at Dumfries. Ebenezer, her seventh child, was born at Harnham on the 16th of March, 1676. Devoting himself to the Christian ministry, he studied divinity under the learned Mr. George Campbell, professor of theology in the College of Edinburgh. After being licensed, he was appointed Sabbath morning lecturer in the Tron Church under Mr. McCullough's mortification. This situation he left in May 1703, having received a call to be minister at Ayr, to which charge he was ordained on the 12th of that month. He soon after married Margaret, daughter of the venerable Mr. Patrick Warner, minister of Irvine, a young lady of great personal attractions, but he did not long survive. When at Edinburgh, attending the commission in December 1706, 
he was seized with a dangerous sickness and died on the 13th of that month. He was a young man of uncommon piety and his death was triumphant. Calling his wife to his bedside, he told her he would give her his parting kiss and recommended her to his God, who, he said, has been all in all to me. And when she asked him whether he would not desire to live with her and serve God some time longer in the church below, he answered in the negative. Then calling out to some of the ministers who were in the room with him, he said, Ye passengers for glory, how near, think you, am I to the new Jerusalem? One of them answered, Not far, sir. He rejoined, I'll wait and climb until I be up among that innumerable company of angels and the spirits of just men made perfect. They removed his wife out of the room, but when he was just expiring, she rushed into the bedside. Waving with his hand, he said, No more converse with the creature. I never, never will look back again. And immediately breathed out his spirit into the hands of his redeeming God. His mother, who gives this account in her diary, adds, It need not be a surprisal to me, for near a year before his death he preached upon these words, Remember, Lord, how short my time is. And when he was at home in his family and heir, in prayer he would be so transported with the joys of heaven as if he would have flown away, and his young wife would often say to him it was a terror to her to hear him so much upon death. But he said it was none to him, so he lived, desired, and died lamented. Footnote His widow was afterward married to Mr. Robert Wadrow, minister of Eastwood, the indefatigable historian of the sufferings of the Church of Scotland. The marriage ring presented to her by both her first and second husband are still preserved as family relics. How it has so happened, says a writer in the Edinburgh Christian Instructor for December 1825, we shall not at present tell. But so it is that we have, while writing this article, actually on our forefinger the identical ring which Mr. Ebenezer Veach presented to his wife previous to marriage. It is a plain gold one with small ivory beads around its outer edge. And within is this Latin inscription which we have some difficulty in translating intelligibly. We give it verbatim et literatim as we see it and leave our readers to make out what they can of it. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue Edmonton that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N Alberta 
abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.